Aloha, and welcome to Sup FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Well, hello and welcome back to this week's episode of Sup FM podcast. And I'm really pleased to bring you this episode, which is perfectly timed for the Northern Hemisphere anyway, all about the positive and the negative effects of cold water on the body and what we can do to prepare ourselves properly for winter paddling. This episode features a world leader in extreme environment physiology, Professor Mike Tipton, who has made his career in doing research into humans operating in extreme environments. There's lots of fascinating and practical information in this episode, including what time of the year is most risky for cold water shop, keeping your fingers and toes warm, and whether cold water swimming and immersion actually does you any good. And Mike has agreed to answer any questions you have about paddling in extreme conditions. So if you do have any questions coming out of this episode, or something that you've always been curious to know more about, then email me your questions at simon.supfm at gmail.com or message SupFM on Facebook or Instagram. And when I've collected enough questions, I'll get them answered for you. So here is my interview with Professor Mike Tipton, MBE. Hi, Mike. Welcome to SupFM. That's great to be here, Simon. Well, before we start properly, I've got to confess here that I do know you outside of your professional role because we were both members of the same rugby club for quite a number of years. And I remember you particularly as a mercurial scrum half. I think that's the right description. And then back in the early 90s, I got the opportunity to spend a bit more time with you, but that was a bit more uncomfortable. Um, as I remember, I was shivering, floating and tethered in a very small swimming pool as a research subject into what was, for a student, my best paid but probably my most uncomfortable student job. The study was, I think it consisted of six sessions, floating in what felt like really cold water in a dry suit for a couple of hours at a time until my body temperature dropped to a certain point where I got removed from the pool. Do you remember those days? I, I remember them very well. Um, I remember playing rugby with the Hutchinsons. In fact, at one stage, are you quite right? I was number nine, and I think number 10, 12, 13, and 11 were, Hutch were all Hutchinsons. So it, it's sort of commentator's nightmare, you know, Tipton to Hutchinson to Hutchinson to Hutchinson to Hutchinson, because it was you, your two brothers, and your dad all playing in the same team. Uh, and then most of the research that I did in cold water immersion in those days should really be classified as the impact of immersion on rugby players, because we got most of our volunteers from the rugby club, of which you were one. Absolutely. And it was quite an experience and paid very well for a poor, impoverished student, which I was at the time. But your day job is being a well-known international expert in the field of extreme environmental physiology. And clearly you're incredibly well thought of in your field and you've produced huge amounts of papers and studies and research. But your work isn't just about the academic. It also extends 
out of that rarefied area and into the practical because you made a huge amount of use of your research through your contacts and uh, through connections that you've made with loads of national and international safety organisations in the UK, particularly the uh, RNLI and Surf Life Saving GB, as well as popping up on lots of national TV programmes talking about um, survival in water. And you've also founded an international drowning researchers alliance as well to improve the knowledge internationally. But the reason for bringing you on today, and I think what our listeners would be particularly interested in listening to, is your knowledge and your expertise where it comes to water and specifically cold water. And for us to discuss and understand the risks of cold water, the benefits uh, what we can do to manage dangers and some of the steps we can take to reduce risks for ourselves and others. So just starting with some of the campaigns that you worked on, I know you worked with the RNLI on their Respect the Water campaign, which ran for quite a few years. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, sure. So you're absolutely right, uh, Simon, that um you know, I kind of am very proud about being a human and applied physiologist uh, with as much emphasis on the applied as anything else. So the backbone of that is that you do the basic science, you understand the physiology, you understand the mechanisms, but you don't just sit about in your ivory tower um, congratulating yourself. You try and make sure that if you have information which is of use to end users, that they're provided with it. And I'm quite right. We've our end users have ranged from you know firefighters through to search and rescue personnel, RLI, surf life saving GB, all their studies being done in the sort of extreme environments laboratory at Portsmouth. But that's just the start. Um, and what happens, of course, is as you work with these groups, uh, you get a very good working relationship, and they take more and more of your scientific evidence and incorporate it in their policies. Um, in their resuscitation policies, in their search and rescue policies. And then the next thing is you get invited to join some of their committees. So I've spent 10 years on the what was the Medical and Survival Committee of the RNLI. I'm now a, a council member of the RNLI, trustee and director of Surf Life Saving GB. We work also with the Coast Guard. and um, um, you know. So, But that's really good because it's a really good conduit to get what we do in the lab out saving lives. And one of the one of the bigger um, routes by which we've we've I think made some impact on what goes on is through the RNLI Respect the Water campaign, which began back in two thousand and fourteen, and it started with trying to get people to understand the risks associated with immersion in cold water, uh, in particular the cold shock response, which was a response which we first described back into back in the eighties, um, about the time when you were volunteering for studies, Simon, and. Um, we then, uh, about two or three years into that, and people may remember that there were TV adverts, there were posters about how long you can hold your breath, et cetera, et cetera. And then about two or three years into that, um, a piece of work was published which showed that about half of the people who end up in water, in cold water in the UK, had no intention of, of falling in. So whilst it's very useful to respect the water and understand what happens when you go in, um, for people who are going to go in without knowing, they need to know what to do when they fall in. 
And then the Respect the Water campaign swung round a little bit from 2017 onwards into, you know, when you fall in, try and relax, stay still, fight the urge to thrash about and um, essentially float first. And again, that was the message that went out in the TV adverts and the cinema adverts. Um, the One of the problems in working in preventative medicine or in, in, in drowning prevention, of course, is it's very hard to get a feel for the impact of what you've done because you can't measure something that doesn't happen. Um, historically, you know, we could say, oh, look, the drowning numbers or the number of shouts that the RNI have gone on is this number or that number. But it's much harder to say, well, actually, there's a guy who was going to run and jump in the water who didn't, or there was a guy who went into the water, remembered the advert and stayed still and survived. You can't get those data unless they're voluntarily given to you. And I have to say that the RNLI have now had a, you know tens of emails from people and contacts saying, I think your um, advice in the Respect the Water campaign saved my life. Uh, and if people go online, they can Google Respect the Water Saving Lives or Float First, and they'll see some of the videos that people have made for us. And they're incredibly powerful. And I've seen many of them, and we'll link to them in the show notes. And in terms of stand-up paddleboarding, of course, you never really plan to fall in the water. I guess if you're surfing, you'd expect to. Uh, but you can get a combination of when you're working hard and you're digging in and then suddenly you hit something or you lose your balance and then you fall into the water. And I guess the cold water shock can particularly affect you if your body temperature is quite high and you're hitting water, which is quite cool or cold and if you don't wear the right clothing to take the edge off or if you're not conditioned or used to cold water um, it can lead to cold water shock so can you take us through exactly what cold water shock is so um, there's a set of responses which um, occur when you first go into cold water uh, and they're driven by a sudden fall in skin temperature now, the uh, thermoreceptors in the skin, the cold receptors, are about 0.18 millimetres below the surface of the skin. And so they cool very quickly. Um, the layer of subcutaneous fat you have, which everyone thinks is the thing that protects you against cold water, actually is below those receptors. So it has no benefit to you in terms of cold shock. And the responses are, you know, the, the responses that people may have experienced when they got under the shower that was cold, that they thought was hot, or when in the pool that wasn't heated as much as it should be. It's a gasp, it's a, a, a hyperventilation, uncontrollable breathing. Uh, there's a sudden increase in the work demand of the heart. The heart rate goes up, the peripheral vasculature shuts down, so blood pressure shoots up. So there's this range of initial responses, which are part of our fight or flight response. Um, there's the response that prepares us to run away or fight, but it's totally inappropriate in water. And we decided back in the 80s to call it the cold shock response because it was easier than running through the list of initial responses I've just mentioned. It's not shock in the traditional medical sense. It's just shock because it's a shocking response. Um, and it peaks in the first seconds of immersion. But the important thing for people to remember is that you sort of regain control of your breathing after about a minute to 90 seconds. Um, the only thing you've got to be very careful about in that period is making sure you keep your airway clear of the water because the lethal dose of drowning, the lethal dose of water for drowning into the lung 
for an average adult is about a maximum of about a litre and a half of salt water. Now, just to put that in perspective, if I take a big breath in now, that's about three to five litres. The gasp of the cold shock response is two to three litres. So just the first breath can be sufficient if you happen to have fallen off your, you know, your board and submerged and taken that gasp, uncontrollable gasp, to put you over the, the limit for drowning. Absolutely. Certainly in terms of the guidance that we get from our certificating bodies um, across the UK, certainly from B Super, is that when you fall in to try and fall in, if possible, backwards, and if possible, with your arms sort of spread out. So you do whatever the reverse is of a belly flop. And, you know, part of the reason is to keep yourself right on top of the water as much as possible, because you don't know what's lying there underneath the water, but also to keep your mouth above the water at all times. Well, that's very, that's very good advice. And um, if obviously you can use your board if it's still you know around for some support. Uh, the, the, unfortunately, the sort of natural physiological urge when you go into cold water is to thrash about and swim fast. And, you know, people, you know, panic a little bit uh, and it's fighting that instinct and actually realising that you want to just humans float. Um, obviously, they particularly float if they've got a life jacket on. But even if they haven't, they'll the most most humans are positively buoyant um, and just relaxing and keeping the airway clear of the water and giving it about a minute to regain control of your breathing, it makes an enormous difference. About 60% of those that die going into cold water around the UK die in the first minute or two. So when we're talking about cold water, in terms of degrees, where's the point when water becomes officially cold? Um, there's no fixed rule on that. Um, you know, at the one end, if you want to say what's thermoneutral water temperature, what's a temperature that you can sit in for a long period without warming up or cooling down, it's 35 degrees Celsius. Um, uh, and in that temperature, you can just control your body temperature by opening, shutting blood to the skin. Remember, we're a tropical animal and we want to be naked in 28 degrees Celsius. Um, which is the, the temperature in which we evolved. And we haven't moved away from those sort of equatorial origins. All we've done, unlike other animals that have got furry or fat that go into cold environments, um, we've used our intellect and we've built houses and worn clothes. And the only reason I can talk to you from Cornwall tonight is because I'm sitting in a house that's heated wearing clothes that recreate next to my skin my equatorial... Um, temperatures so my you know the equivalent of 28 degrees 33 degrees skin temperature 37 degree core temperature now so going into cold water for a tropical air breathing animal is about the biggest thing you can do so um but in terms of you're losing your ability to control your breathing then cold water is probably best defined at, at below 15 so we know that that cold shock response from studies we've done um, previously peaks somewhere between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius. But you can still, but it's an enormous, uh, enormously variable feast between individuals. You know, you get the half man, half Weddell seal that can hold their breath for minutes in any temperature. And then you've got people who are hyperventilating away on immersion in 20 degrees. I was going to ask this question a bit later on, but. It's kind of prompted now. 
Is there anything that we can do to prepare ourselves to condition ourselves in advance? I know people talk about cold water swimming and and cold water immersion as a preparation for accidentally going into the water. Would that help a paddleboarder? Would that help condition them for an accidental swim? Yeah, I mean, when you think about protection, there's there's two major routes. There's physiological and there's technological. And as I say, historically, we've always chosen the behavioural slash technological route. Um, and and in this context, for a, a you know stand up paddleboarder, the technological stuff would be protective clothing of some kind, of which you know most people know there's lots of that out there. And you know, and the major um, objective of clothing that's going to protect against cold shock is to slow the rate of fall of skin temperature um, and cover as much of the skin as possible because the faster the skin cools and the bigger the surface area exposed the bigger the cold shock response and the more uncontrollable and long-lasting the respiratory drive Um, putting that to one side the technical side the physiological side is yes humans are very good at habituating to the cold shock response so as few as six, two or three minute immersions in cold water can halve that cold shock response. More importantly, it means you get control back of your breathing sooner rather than later. Um, so we've done studies where we've looked at, you know, putting people into cold water for two or three minutes. And we'll find that we can, as I say, halve their cold shock response after about six, three minute immersions. And that up to 14 months later, that reduction is still 25% reduced. So not only can we habituate fairly easily, it's quite a long lasting change. And it's classic of what you'd see, you mentioned open water swimmers, it's classically what you see in open water swimmers. I mean, we've had we've had channel swimmers, we've had um, Lewis Pugh when he was doing his swim along the south coast of the, of the UK in the lab. And you can't actually see when you look at the traces when he goes into the water. He's so habituated to cold. Well, that's that's incredible and also great to know, particularly for um, people like myself. I know there are other listeners who are experimenting with cold water exposure. So that, that's a bit of validation to what they're doing and uh, just a bit of evidence that the effects do last. So just to cover a bit more off about the cold shock so I know that after those initial effects, there are things that can follow on afterwards. There are other stages, confusion and various other things that happen. If you happen to stay in there beyond that initial cold water stage, uh, that initial cold water shock stage, and things were continuing to head in a downward direction, what would you expect to happen next and what would you have to watch out for? Yeah, well, there's, there's four stages of immersion associated with particular risk. And up to now, we've talked about one of them, um, cold shock. And they really equate to changes in different tissues of the body. So the cold shock response is driven by a sudden fall in, in skin temperature, um, which you can only see in water because air air is just not good enough at taking heat away from the skin to cool it fast enough to produce a cold shock response. The next tissues that cool are the superficial nerves and muscles. And in particular, 
the arms are very susceptible to cooling because they're thin, long cylinders and the muscles that are in them and the nerves that are in, are in them are pretty close to the surface. So within about five or 10 minutes of water at say 12 to 15 degrees Celsius, you'll start to get impairment in your manual dexterity, your strength, your ability to swim, your ability to keep your airway clear of the water. And that's what we call a short-term uh, immersion problem. And that's one that you can't habituate to. I mean, that'll be apparent in anybody, irrespective of their experience of going into cold water. But it does mean that within a relatively short period, um, you're going to struggle to, if you're, if you, the only way you're keeping your airway clear in the water is swimming or sculling, you're going to struggle to do that. And the literature is absolutely, the, the sort of fatal accident inquiry investigations um, are full of people who are clinging onto rafts, onto the side of life rafts, onto floats for about 10 to 20 minutes before they lost grip and, and floated away. Um, so that's sort of neuromuscular cooling. Um, hypothermia, although it's a very common term and is banded about quite a lot, and you hear people saying, oh, they died from hypothermia in four minutes. It's a physical impossibility for an adult human to die from hypothermia in four minutes. Um, you just, we just got too much heat. We're just too much thermal inertia. We're too much, we're too big to cool quickly enough. So normally hypothermia won't intervene before 30 minutes and some, you know, and that's in very cold temperatures. But once you get to starting to experience hypothermia, then you mention, you know, some personality uh, uh, changes and changes in brain function. Well, that's absolutely right. The first major organ to be affected as now your deep body tissues. So we've moved from the skin through to the superficial nerves and muscles now into your deep tissues. So this is your heart and your brain in, in particular. Um, the first major organ to be affected is the brain. So you see personality changes, you see amnesia, you, um, you know, people become confused, make bad decisions, do start things like undressing because they paradoxical undressing where they think they're hot, but they're not. Um, and as, as your body temperature falls, your brain sl function slowly deteriorates to a point where between about 33 and 30, you become unconscious normal body temperature about 37. Now that can take varying amounts of time, as I say, depending on the water temperature. The classic numbers we use is one hour at five, two hours at 10, six hours at 15 degrees Celsius. But of course, if you become unconscious uh, in the water and you're not wearing some kind of life jacket or way of supporting the airway, then you drown at that point. So up to now, I've talked about the cold shock response. One of the endpoints of that is drowning. The physical incapacitation um, because of superficial cooling, endpoint drowning, and even as your deep body temperature falls, the first endpoint is drowning before you go on to die from the direct effects of, of hypothermia. Uh, and then, I mean, the final stage, which I'll just mention, is about 20% of those that die, die just before, during, or shortly after rescue from immersion, from that immersion. Uh, it's particularly soul-destroying for, you know, the search and rescue organisations to come to somebody they found in the water and find that their condition deteriorates just by them turning up. Uh, and we think that in part is to do with the relaxation that people have when they come to be um, rescued. And it's really important if you're being rescued to keep fighting for your survival. Don't relax, don't give up, because it seems to have a very negative effect on your physiology and your condition. 
And then if you've been cold for a very long while, you've got to be careful how you extract people from the water. But in terms of, you know, the people who would be listening to this, the stand-up um, borders, then those first two uh, stages of immersion are particularly pertinent. Yeah, and learning the lessons from that, it's vital to get out of the water as quickly as possible. So when you do fall in the water, you fall in in the way that I mentioned, just making sure that you keep your mouth and your head above the surface if you can. You float, you get your breath back, and then you make sure that you stack the rest of the luck in your direction by making sure that in advance, obviously, you're wearing the right outfit, the right clothing. So whether it's a dry suit or a wet suit or whatever works for you. And this is also where the, the PFD, the personal flotation device, comes in as well, because that allows you to float higher in the water, maybe stop you from um, going quite as deep in the water when you fall in initially. And of course, the most important bit of safety equipment is your leash, which attaches you to your board. That might be a quick release leash, but essentially it means that you've got a big floating raft right next to you. And then you can hop back onto your board and warm yourself up with a, a good hard paddle. So I think it's all about being aware of these potential stages and how things can go downhill really very quickly if you're not prepared. Yes, and I, I agree entirely. Uh, you know, the life jacket, PFD, incredibly important. Uh, the, probably the single most important piece of life-saving equipment somebody who's going to end up in water can have. Uh, every year we do an analysis of the number of people who have died that year because they weren't wearing a life jacket um, when they should have been, and the numbers are staggeringly large and sad. Um, and also, quite rightly, you know, you've got an enormous flotation device there in your board. Make sure you you keep it with you, and know that. There's no situation where you're not better off out the water than in the water. A human cools four to five times faster in water than they do in air at the same temperature. Um, water is just a fantastic fluid for removing heat from the body. Um, and air is actually not that, not that good at all. Air is actually an insulator. Um, and one of the things that bothers me slightly about stand-up paddleboarding is, of course, because you can spend quite a lot of time in air, you begin to think that that's the environment that you're operating in. But of course, when disaster strikes, it won't be air that you'll be operating in. It will be the cold water that you're standing on at the start, start of the event. And that's what you need to be prepared for. Exactly. And I think it's probably not so much the winter which provides the most risk and the most danger for stand-up paddleboarders, because if it's frosty outside, you're going to dress for those conditions. I think the time of the year that's most risky is the spring when the water temperature is still very low and the sun is up and you're feeling hot. And the last thing you want to do at that point is to put on a wetsuit or a dry suit because you're exercising hard and you'll overheat. So the danger is that you're wearing your normal kit, your board shorts or whatever, and then you fall in at that point because the difference between the air temperature and your body temperature is high and the water is absolutely at its coldest. Yep, that's absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't just reflect itself in the risk to um, paddle boarders. That's when we see the most drownings as well, because, you know, early summer, 
uh, because of the differences between air and water and how much um, easier it is to heat up air than water, we'll get some sun in, you know, May, April, May, air temperature will go screeching up and water temperature is as cold as it's, it's going to be. And then because water temperature, of course, is not at its highest until about September, October. So, yeah, the really dangerous time of year is that 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 first sort of war, those first warm days of spring where where people think that they're dealing with a nice warm air environment, not realising they've got, you know, a potentially lethal water temperature beneath them. So moving on then to rewarming. So there are obviously the extremes of hypothermia in which you've got to be really careful in terms of rewarming the body. If you do get very, very cold, what's the ideal way of getting your temperature back up again? Oh, um, now this you've got to be very careful with this because this is a this is a, 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 a I'm trying to avoid saying hot topic, but this is a, a, a topic that's being banded around a lot in the, the open water swimming um, area at the moment, which, again, is another sport that's that's really taken off. Uh, and one of the problems that I constantly am battling against is people have a little bit of knowledge, um, but don't understand that actually quite a lot of science that do- that's done is the answers are very specific to the situation in which they were applied. So most people, most people you'll hear saying, oh, when you come out of cold water, you mustn't have you mustn't have a shower or you mustn't have a bath because you've got the danger of the after drop. Now. Um, okay, that's nice in a way, and that it errs on the side of caution. But it does mean that quite a lot of people who could have a shower or a bath are standing about freezing cold for an hour and a half whilst they're trying to warm up. Um, so let, let, let's just go through it very quickly. Um, the, the after drop and post immersion collapse, and how you take people out of the water, was all done by my friend and colleague of many years, um, Frank Golden, who Simon will remember, um, uh, and that you do have a problem with rescuing people and you do have a problem post-immersion if somebody's been in the water a long while where they've become hypothermic semi-conscious they've you know they've lost quite a lot of their circulating blood volume their responses to changes in pressure are, are not good and in that situation it's dangerous to lift people out of the water vertically and it's dangerous to put them into a hot shower however if somebody's just been in the water five or ten minutes and they've superficially cooled, so they're pretty uncomfortable because your perception of the environment is driven by your skin temperature. So they'll feel very uncomfortable. There's absolutely no problem with them having a hot bath and or a hot shower. Um, a bath is more effective than a shower, but um, uh, as I say, more difficult to come by. If there's a shower there, fine. Um, perhaps sit down in it in case you do overstay your welcome and feel a bit faint. So you know, if you've got access to warm water, get into it. Um, if you've only been in the water and cooled down for five or 10 minutes, if you've got somebody who's got, you know, moderate um, hypothermia and has been in the water a long while, then they the best way to rewarm them is spontaneously. You insulate them and you let them rewarm slowly um, over time so their body can adjust to all the things that have changed during that long period of being cold. That's great advice. So one question which I've been asked to speak to you about is around extremities, fingers and toes. So I'm a keen surfer. I take my paddleboard out surfing quite a lot. And because the right conditions 
tend to be when the conditions are clear. Sod's law dictates that when I go out, it's absolutely freezing. I mean, the definition of a cold session is when you've still got frost on your car when you've driven back from a session. So that cold. So as a result, despite wearing five mil booties and socks and neoprene everywhere, it's absolutely freezing when I get down to the beach and it stays like that for about five, ten minutes until I've caught a few waves and then it's absolutely fine and warm. Um, OK, so um, your peripheral blood flow, uh, which sometimes is ignored by lots of people going to cold water, um, other than it makes them very uncomfortable. But there are conditions that you can get from having cold extremities cold wet extremities for a good deal of time one of which is non-freezing cold injury um, which is a not a very pleasant condition to get it makes you cold sensitive it can be painful um, and you know it can lead to some lifelong debilitation um, but you know let's park that for the moment your peripheral blood your, your, the temperature of your hands and feet is primarily determined by the blood that flows to them um, your hands are very good and your feet are very good at losing heat. High surface area to mass ratio, five cylinders all designed to lose heat. Now, you can put a glove or a neoprene glove on them, but once they're cold, once they're shut down, the only real way you're going to warm them up again is by getting blood into them. The neoprene glove will, will maintain the skin temperature a bit higher and slow the rate at which it cools, but what you really need to do is get blood into them now of course what happens is with people they go and they're getting ready to do their their boarding they're around in a cool environment and the body will will sacrifice the extremities in order to defend deep body temperature and that that sacrifice occurs through a withdrawal of blood to the extremities so you shut down it's called vasoconstriction and there's very virtually no blood going to the hands and feet in that situation when you now start exercising, um, you generate enough heat to raise your body temperature a bit, your deep body temperature, and the body now starts to use the hands and feet to try and offload heat. Um, so, you know, in, in where the blood goes in the body, the deep body temperature is king. Um, it, you know, the body is desperately trying to maintain the temperature of the heart and brain because they're much more important than fingers and toes. Uh, and so... You can use that information. You know that you're going to to warm up if you um, exercise a bit and you raise your body temperature. We know you've got to raise your body temperature about 0.2 or 0.3 of a degree, not very much. If you want to avoid that initial dip, then warm up a bit before you go out. You know, just as we used to do warm ups prior to rugby, just to raise the body temperature a bit and get some blood flowing into the hands and feet. Think about doing that before you go out to go paddleboarding and then clamp that body that body heat in where by putting on the gear you're going to use and then you'll find you won't cool down as much you know going to the start of your paddleboard and as soon as you paddleboard you'll re-establish that blood flow or maintain it uh, much more easily that's really useful i will certainly do a decent warm-up in future before my surf sessions so Cold water these days is very much in the news and very much in people's attention. Um, cold water swimming's taken off like a, a bomb, which you already mentioned. And also people are immersing themselves in cold water in various bizarre ways. 
And it seems to have been inspired to a degree by a guy called Wim Hof, um, a crazy Dutchman who's done some unbelievable things. What's your view on all of that? I know that you've met Wim, Wim Hof, haven't you? Uh, yes, I've had lunch with Wim Hof, uh, as I say, my claim to, my claim to fame. Um, well, let's let's put it like this: there's there's uh, cold is a double edged sword, and up until now we've spoken about one edge, which is all the different ways it can debilitate and kill you. And I always feel a, you know I always feel a bit of a miserable individual when I you know run through how you know, all these different ways you can be killed. Um, but on the other side of that sword there is an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence that it seems to do something positive the problem with it uh, simon is that the, the the kill side of the sword is well researched well published well understood and is definitely a problem the potential pro side or the the cure side is largely anecdotal evidence now there's nothing wrong with anecdotal evidence and when you, and the nice thing about working with humans is you get lots of it because you talk to humans, um, and it is a form of evidence. It's just the weakest form of evidence. Um, but you know, on the basis of what people have told us, you know, we can formulate hypotheses as to why going into cold water is beneficial. So, for example, that cold shock response includes the release of a whole load of stress hormones. Uh, and that's why people say, oh, I feel alert, I feel aroused, I feel alive, you know, it, it sets me up for the day. Well, that's because your body is preparing you to fight or flight uh, and has released a load of adrenaline and other stress hormones into the body when you when you dropped it into cold water. Um, there's also an anti-inflammatory component to going into cold water. And increasingly, we're understanding that quite a lot of the debilitating conditions which people can have from you know alzheimer's through to depression have an inflammatory component to them and so you know i'm not here to say that you know it's all bunkum because i can provide you with a fairly you know intricate scientific hypothesis as to why it might be working um and um, but what we lack is the scientific evidence and the problem at the moment is um isolating the active ingredient so, for example, people who go out in, in you know, whether it be stand up paddle boarding or cold water swimming, they're doing a lot more than just exposing themselves to cold. You know, they're exercising, they're going into salt water. Uh, and we've known for centuries and people have thought for centuries that going into salt water is good for you. Whole towns have evolved on the basis of that principle over the years. Um, you're going to a green therapy, blue therapy, you're meeting other people. You know, there's a whole host of reasons why engaging in water-based sports where you you, know, you get cold um, may be of benefit. Uh, we've written a paper called um, Cold Water Immersion Kill or Cure, which people can find online if they want to read the detail of it. And I would recommend something like um, the young lady, who Bethany, who suffers from severe migraine and her, her project looking at 100 days of vitamin C, uh, with vitamin C being spelt vitamin S-E-A. Um, and she very clearly demonstrates the belief that cold water immersion is good for her. And as I say, it may be. And, and after a while, what happens, of course, is that you get a placebo effect because everyone's telling you that going into cold water is good for you. So when you go and do it, surprise, surprise, you think it's good for you. Yeah, and there's been more research into placebos than anything else. But does it matter if it makes you feel better? 
Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I say that I always I always end conversations on this where, you know, if it's a placebo effect, but if it's a placebo effect that gets rid of your depression, you know, we did a we published a study on um, cold water swimming and depression with a young lady um, who was really suffering from severe postnatal depression. And she took up swimming and it's gone and she's not on drugs anymore. Um, it was done with Chris Van Tulliken, one of the two doctors that does Operation Ouch and lots of other TV programs. Again, you can find it online. Now, I can't. But, but as a scientist, what I want to know is why it works. What's the mechanism? But at one level, I can just say, well, if it works, it works. But wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, taking a ludicrous extreme example, if just putting your hand and foot into cold water had the same effect? Now, now all of a sudden, you can get all this beneficial um, response without actually having to immerse the whole body. Now it becomes something that many more people might be able to do. I mean, there's all sorts of theories out there, and clearly I wouldn't ask a man of your scientific integrity to speculate on them, but a lot of people talk about the vagus nerve and conditioning that. I don't know whether that's a valid area. No, no, that's definitely part. I mean, it's, that's definitely one of the theories, is that the, the vagus nerve um, is when stimulated can have a very beneficial effect anti-inflammatory effect it's stimulated by receptors on the face um in some conditions um in the u.s actually artificial stimulation of the vagus nerve by implants is recommended um now you know if you happen to go swimming and you put your face in the water or your face gets splashed then you'll be stimulating the vagus nerve. Now, the other side of that coin is we also know that if you happen to be breath holding for a long while with your face in the water, um, there's an 80% chance that you'll have a cardiac irregularity or arrhythmia within 10 seconds of breaking your breath hold. So yet again, you know, there's this, there's this twin edge sword that makes it very difficult. So am I recommended that people go and breath hold and put their face into cold water? No, I'm not certainly for a, you know an extended period but you know if they're if they're swimming and their face dips into the water and they don't hold their breath um, you know for any length of time then perhaps it's beneficial we just don't know so Mike you've done a lot of work with lifeguards and surf life-saving organizations what's been your role with them what sort of knowledge have you been able to help them with so the work that we've done over the years that then sort of influenced things like RNLI, um, search and rescue RNLI, um, you know, their first aid approach to immersion victims, and the same with um, Surf Life Saving GB. As I say, I'm, I've ended up having um, positions with both of those guys, the council for the RNLI and director trustee for Surf Life Saving, and I'm very proud to do that. And it's a really nice link between you know, the, from from the lab to life-saving, I call it. Um, so it all started with cold water immersion, but also um, in things like we've gone on then to look at fitness standards for beach lifeguards. So we did some work for, we've done, uh, our, our sort of remit is to look at the physiological, pathophysiological and psychological responses of humans to extreme environments and the protection, preparation and selection for people to go into those environments. So, you know, the protection is things like we've talked about in terms of clothing, um, physiological adaptation, um, the, you know, protective clothing for firefighters, protective clothing for yachtsmen, 
the preparation might be adaptation and the selection is well you know who should be going into these environments to, um, to work and so we've done that for example for the coast guard we've done it for the RAF um, but we only deal with it in extreme environments and with the lifeguards we we wrote the fitness standards for the RLI which are used around the globe now and um they're based on the ability to get to somebody in the water and within three minutes, which is how long it takes, we think, for people to get um, to, to drown and to get them back to the shore to commence basic life support within 10 minutes, which is the window we know where you've got the best chance of resuscitating somebody who is drowning. Uh, and so that, it's that, again, that nice mix of mechanism, theory um, and practical. So if people go off and, you know, if there's anybody out there who ends up volunteering to be a lifeguard or wants to get a job as a lifeguard, when they do their fitness test, it would have come from us. And the final piece of that jigsaw was, of course, you know, you've got 10 minutes to get to somebody and get them back to the shore, but that includes how long it takes you to see them. So most recently, I've been doing quite a lot of work with a colleague from Chichester University, Jenny Smith, who used to be at Portsmouth looking at um, visual acuity standards initially, and then how to look out to see, how to see people that are in trouble. It, it amazed us that we've had, you know, crow's nests for centuries, and yet you can't find anything in the literature about the best way of looking out to see, to see somebody. So we've done lots of work on that, and we now know the best way to do it. And we know that um, experience is really important. Somebody who's done it for a couple of years in terms of lifeguarding will be five times better at seeing somebody in trouble than somebody who's in their first year we've got training packages we've done all kinds of things so you know all but all focused again on reducing the numbers of drownings and i guess the final thing to say um on on this particular topic is um you know we go back to where we started with prevention and what one of my hobby horses and passions has been to try to get water safety messaging into schools. Um, I, you know, and I don't mean teaching kids about tides and the moon and the sun. I mean, just if I could get everybody um, to understand three things, um, I think we would have an enormous impact on drowning. Number one is that tides, the water comes in and goes out. And when it comes in, you can get trapped. Uh, in a bad place understand that and it, it may surprise your listeners to know that there are people who go to the beach who didn't realize that the water comes in and goes out because they've just not grown up in that environment number two is to identify a rip um, and what to do when you're in a rip so uh, you know swim parallel to the shore you will be out the rip rest until you get out the back of it raise your hand and the third is what to do about cold shock and we've already we've already discussed that uh, and if we can get that taught in every school in the UK, we will absolutely, um, you know, smash the drowning statistics. At the moment, we're losing somebody every 20 hours. We're losing a child a week. That is unacceptable for an island nation. Unbelievable. And there is a huge lack of knowledge out there. And again, probably the people listening to, to this podcast aren't numbered amongst them because clearly they're finding out about stuff. But all sorts of people ask for advice, particularly on, on Facebook groups. Uh, in the summer, there was someone asking for advice about paddling around uh, uh, Old Harry Rocks, which is a, a scenic 
part of the Dorset coast and they were getting advice on parking and where to put in and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, I checked the weather forecast and there was a massive offshore wind at exactly the, the time that they were planning to paddle. So um, unfortunately, I spoiled their plans for the weekend, but there have been various rescues for exactly that reason. So all of this basic stuff around safety and weather, it's not actually that difficult if you look into it but yeah you're quite right those messages really need to get out there consistently well i think there's another there's two things is um firstly they need to get out there and secondly they need to be simple we tend to over you know we get we overcomplicate things and there's mission creep you know you've got to say then there's three or four things which we if everybody knew um and you're quite right i mean lots of people on the coast already know it and yet when you talk, when I, when I was trying very hard to get this on the national curriculum, the perception from um, government is that this is a coastal problem. It's actually not a coastal problem. If you look at where people come from to drown, they come from mainly inland. And then, of course, we tend to ignore, because we like coastal sports, that there's thousands and thousands of miles of rivers, canals and other waterways. Um, and the study we've just done where we've, ta- we've taught 900 children in Hampshire um, about water safety. We did it in collaboration with uh, the RNLI and Hampshire County Council and showed very clearly that with a simple 15 or 20 minute lesson, not focused on great theory, but just focused on those practical bits of information about rips, tides and cold shock, that we could significantly improve the, the children's knowledge of these things. And six months later, when we retested, they'd retained that information. Uh, and, and, you know, and once you get to that level, then hopefully if one of them gets caught in a rip in later life, they'll remember, oh, I remember, like, you know, swim parallel to the shore. Um, so we're hoping that that gets taken up by more county councils uh, and more children get taught that until it becomes essentially a part of the national curriculum. Um, but by by that by that route rather than by written being written into it. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Well, Absolutely. And again, coming back to you working to practically apply this knowledge, uh, you helped to found an international organisation to manage drowning. And because we've got an international audience here, are there any country specific issues or are there just similar issues in terms of education and understanding the risks of the water? Well, there's, there's um, you're talking about the International Drowning Researchers Alliance, IDRA. And if people want to go online again, they can find that. And it was founded by people from Brazil, uh, the Netherlands, Spain, New Zealand um, and the US. Uh, and we, we're all it's there primarily to help people um, who are doing work in in drowning and drowning related issues, drowning prevention. Um, but also it, it's a way of exchanging information about the problems that different groups have, because it's not all necessarily about cold water. I mean, Copacabana and Ipanema beaches are seeing, you know, large numbers of immersion deaths, but for different reasons. You know, there it's people who are not very good at swimming. There it's, you know, other other aspects of immersion. So, uh, um, you know, it's it's a really good way of helping people do their research. We give free advice. Um, you know, it's a free membership. We don't charge or make any money. But it is also a good way of sharing best practice. We get involved in the 
international standards on things like most recent one was of course was how do you go about treating a drowning victim in an in a in the age of covid um are you going to be doing mouth to mouth or you're not going to be doing mouth to mouth so these you know it's there to give you know address these issues um at a, at a moment's notice uh, it's been a really good um group and a, and a force for good and we'll put all of these links in the show notes mike thanks for your time it's been great to reconnect after all these years it's been a fascinating chat and i've learned a huge amount and i know our listeners will do too where can we find out more about you so uh my uh twitter account is at prof mike tipton where if we're you know whenever we publish anything i just let it be known there and give people links to free copies of the papers etc um, if people go on to ResearchGate and type in my name, all of the the uh, chapters that I've written over the years and all of the papers are listed there. The chapters are free to access. Um, the University of Portsmouth has a research paper repository called Pure, P-U-R-E, where all our papers are, again, free to access. So, um, you know, I, it's not that difficult this day and age to uh, get hold of of, of the, the basic papers. And um, also, of course, a lot of our stuff is taken then interpreted on websites like the website of the Surf Life Saving GB, the RNLI website. Um, so you can actually get there's, you know, loads of stuff out there um, to, to look at. That's fantastic, Mike. And thanks so much for your time and particularly for all the excellent work that you do, all of that practical work you do to share your knowledge and keep people safe. And thank you again for appearing on the SUPFM podcast. My very great pleasure, Simon. It's um, brought back very many happy memories as well. Take care. Well, thanks for listening to this episode and a very big thank you to Professor Mike Tipton, MBE, for that brilliant and very informative chat. If you want to improve your safety knowledge even further, then check out the SUPFM safety course at supfm.thinkific.com. Thank you again and see you next week. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.